Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. Today, we have an interview for you. I recently chatted with Andrew Liptak about his upcoming book, Cosplay, A History. This book may surprise you because while that term, cosplay, is relatively new in the vernacular, Andrew's book actually covers a lot of human history. And that history coverage is not too surprising. Andrew got his degree in military history. This conversation will touch on 16th century mummers and Jules Verne and the earliest instances of costuming at fan conventions. You'll hear some names that'll sound familiar if you're a regular listener to the show. Yeah, heads up. Listen for that Hugo Gernsback talk. Uh, So here is our chat. So, Andrew, first off, I know that you costume, but lots of people costume and they don't read a book about its history. So what made you want to write this book? Um, Writing is the only thing I'm really good at. And I've been a journalist for more, you know, more than 10 years at this point. And it just seemed like a good way to put the whole story together rather than like a series of blog posts or newsletter issues or, or a feature article somewhere. Um, there's a lot to the story of cosplay and it, it goes, you know, back hundreds of years. Um, there's a lot to say about the modern iterations of it where there's, um, you know, in, in 2022, everything that, everything that goes into the cosplay world, whether it's 3d printing or racial dynamics or entertainment, the, the mechanics of the entertainment industry, um, all of that makes sense to just at least made sense to me to to put it together into one package as a book because understanding the entire context of what cosplay is helps give you a better picture of how we come to it today. And it, you know, it's I've always wanted to write a book because I have lots of books that I would very much like people to have a book that has my name on it. <laughs> there you go. I think that's fair. It is interesting, and I'm glad you kind of set it up like that, because I think for most of us that go to fan conventions or even just are, you know, aware of pop culture, every generation seems to think that they're the ones that are costuming and people weren't really doing it that much before. But we know that's not true, as our discussion will reveal. Um, I do want to level set, though, because I imagine any of our listeners who, as I just said, have gone to conventions uh, or know pop culture, know what cosplay is kind of intuitively. But I also know, because I remember when it came to the forefront as a replacement for costuming in fan groups, (laughs) um, it's a term that doesn't necessarily have an agreed-on definition. So I want to know, how do you define cosplay? The word itself is 
a mashup of the word costume play. And it was coined in the 1980s by a Japanese writer who wanted to try to find the right term for it and couldn't really like costuming didn't quite have the right effects. Older fans from um, science fiction fandom called it like, uh, you know, the, like a costume masquerade or costume and their costumers. So cosplay seemed to be the right, get, capture the right tone for it. So you're, you're costuming and it's, it's playing. So you, it, it's, it holds up today because it's, it's still in use. Um, my definition is, has basically been sort of an act of fandom. Anytime somebody is dressing up as a character out of that love of fandom, out of that sense of, of wanting to become a character, they're dressing up to relate to a story somehow. And when you think cosplay, you think superheroes or Star Wars or anime. Um, my, I wanted to make sure that my definition was really broad because, um, you know, a story is not always fictional. It, it can be non-fictional. So in the book, I include things like, Maybe it's not quite cosplay, but it's sort of under this big broad umbrella of other activities where somebody's relating to a story. So I include some things about reenacting and protesters. I think it's, I basically see it as anytime you're you are you're dressing up to relate to a story somehow, whether that that is to you know dress up as somebody who is basically doing charitable work at a hospital or just going to a convention and basically things like that. There is an instance of historical cosplay that you talk about in this book that charmed me so utterly. And I had not ever read about it before, even though it involves a person that I really, really like. Uh, And that is Jules Verne. And he apparently threw quite a party in 1877. And you relay that story. Will you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. So Jules Verne, if if you don't know, he's the science fiction author who wrote 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, From the Earth to the Moon. And he was a he was a really big author. He 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 was known all over the world for his stories. It seems like he had a bit of a I don't say troubled personal life, but like he you know his family had its ups and downs, and um, his son was getting into some trouble and was about to be shipped off to uh, basically a, a penal <laughs> a penal colony or or like a really strict school of some sort. And he basically wanted to take his family's mind off of the troubles, so they basically commissioned. You basically threw a big party. Is you know. You're about to ship your, your ship your delinquent son off to school. Why wouldn't you you <laughs> throw throw a costume party? <laughs> and what I what I found most interesting about this is that when like they sent out invitations, it was apparently very expensive, and they they put a lot of they put a lot of effort into this. People showed up to this party dressed as his characters. Um, I I don't remember off the top of my head if records survived about which what costumes they were. But he, he certainly had a, a really big impact on the literary world at the time. So I, I can't imagine that, like, you know, people were dressing up, you know, with, with some of those, you know, influences. Now, they might not have had, you know, the direct visual references that they have, that we have today, where, you know, you can freeze frame a movie and, you know, get a character from every right. a- angle. But, you know, there, there's certainly a lot of examples of where people were sort of, you know, dressing up to be inspired, you know, as inspired by this. And, you know, when you're, you know, a kid and you're dressing up for your own costume party, you're doing the same thing. You're, you're trying to, you know, approximate what you imagine those characters might look like. And um, I, I really wish you know, I, you know, knew what he might have thought of that. I, I imagine that it, it's pretty, you know, like any author or any TV personality or, or film actor, you know, we'd be cut, you know, utterly charmed by the idea of seeing your characters come to life. And this isn't the only instance of that. Um, one thing that didn't make it into the book, because I learned about it um, like right after I finished edits is um, Arthur Conan Doyle also did this. Um, he didn't, he didn't throw a party, but he would dress up. Um, he, he's, he's obviously the author known uh, for creating uh, Sherlock Holmes. Um, but his favorite character wasn't Sherlock Holmes. It was a guy named uh, Professor Challenger who is uh, featured in a, uh, you know, the, a book called the lost world where some explorers go off and discover this isolated plateau in South America where they're, they discovered dinosaurs in this, in this lost world. And apparently he dressed up as his own character every now and then. And I found that to be a really, a really fun little anecdote. And so, and there's even, there's instances further back. Um, I, I was just at Star Wars Celebration and, and I was talking with somebody in line and they mentioned that, oh, I studied art history. And there was this Roman emperor who, who dressed up as Hercules, or at least there, there are busts of uh, statues of him dressed up as Hercules. I think I think that the the notion of us dressing up as characters to sort of relate to the story is something that has lived with us for a very very long time, and it, it just sort of, sort of shows to go just how much of storytelling creatures we are. We just we just really like to sort of immerse ourselves in that world. In some cases, it's just by imagining it, but in other cases, um, it's by you know trying to figure out what outfit this character might have worn and you know how they might have acted or looked. 
And I'm glad you mentioned that because I really am fascinated by this. The more I I looked through your book and read all of these stories, I kept being struck by the fact that I have theoretically always known, but when you're seeing it all grouped together, it really drives the point home that there have always been people doing this throughout history. You go way back through history, including things like mummers and pagan folk traditions back to the 16th century. So this is something that as a species, humans have always loved to do. And I'm curious, I think you're, you kind of intimated it just now talking about how we, we are always trying to tell stories, but why do you think we so instinctively turn to costumes for everything from warding off evil to just partying as superheroes and all points in between? Like a costume is a quick cultural go-to almost around the globe as a way to do this, which I find fascinating. Yeah. So as I said, I think we're, we're storytelling creatures. It's, it's our most important technology. I think as, as a species, if we, if we really want to get really philosophical about it, it's, it's a way that we can convey information to one another. It's, it's a way that we share our values and, and our, you know, adventures and, and thrills and excitements. And our imagination is really, really great. If you describe something, you can have a picture of it in your head. What things like books and now movies or comic books, they do, they let, they allow us to sort of make those thoughts concrete, which is really this, really in my mind, a really magical way to look at this because it lets us transfer what was once thought into a sort of telepathy that we can share from person to person. Why we put costumes on and why we pick up props, I think is just a way to sort of extend that and just to make those thoughts a little bit more manifest and to just to bring them those thoughts a little bit more to life for the benefit of somebody who's on the, on the sidelines. Whether that is somebody in a captive audience on a stage or sitting in a, in a movie theater or at a convention, you, you know, you see these characters come to life and you can believe for a second that, you know, these stories, these thoughts, these ideas, these lessons now come together into, in, into the real world. And that's, that's, I think, one of the, the real powers of cosplay is that it lets you bring these characters to life. And, you know, the, we really love, you know, these are, these are really phenomenal stories. Like, you know, I, I'm a, if, if once people read the book, you'll see how I'm a big star Wars fan. Um, this is a really, you know, her, store of heroics. It's this, it's a story of how people really triumph over evil and they make decisions that help them save the world. And I think that, you know, we are always striving to sort of see those things in the world and it, you know, made manifest and costumes just help us make that a little bit better. I don't, I don't know about you or, or any listeners, but like when I see Darth Vader, I get a chill that goes down my spine because, you know, it's it's a real visceral thing. I'm around stormtroopers a lot more and, and they, they're terrible shots, so I'm not quite as worried about them. But, you know, when, <laughs> when you see when you see other characters like that, you know, really elicit that that sense of fear, that real gut instinct of emotion and, you know, you see them in front of you, it's it's a really powerful thing. Um, and I've heard actors talk about this, like um, somebody was talking about, you know, coming up against Darth Vader and that just being really like, oh, my God, it's real because, you know, it, it's it's a really imposing costume. It's a really imposing character. And the same thing is like when you see a character that's really heroic. Well, if I see, a, a you know, a, a little girl uh, seeing um, Ahsoka Tano for the first time or Princess Leia and it's like their favorite character ever, you know, that's got to be a really powerful thing for them because they, you know, all that character represents is now made manifest and it's no longer an intangible thing it's a, it's a tangible thing in the real world and if if the character is real in the world everything that they represent must be too and i so i think that's that's why you know cosplay is, can be such a powerful thing that's a beautiful way to look at it i had not really thought about it in those terms um I do want to talk about some more specific historical things because I kept finding just gems in the text that jumped out at me. One of them was your mention of political protest costumers from the 1800s who were known as the Fantasticals. Will you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, this was a really fun thing that I came across. And it was one of those things that was just like a crazy random happenstance just going through archives. I think I was going through the... um, say Library of Congress's archives um, online and just trying to like just typing in costume and just seeing what, what popped up. So the Fantasticals were, this needs a little bit of setup just to, to fully understand the context. There was 
you know, 1800s, there was a um, U.S. was still a fairly young nation. There was a lot of sort of consternation about the state of the nation's militia system. And, you know, people would be conscripted into helping out. And there was a, a lot of corruption and just general disillusionment with the, the, the organizations that were set up to, you know, presumably protect the country or protect the region or whatever. What people started doing was dressed, and this was largely a, a phenomenon confined to like the Philadelphia area and the New York City area. Um, and it, it expanded a little bit out from there. Uh, but what really, it, it was sort of in that corner of, of the country. And what people started doing was just dressing up as these ridiculous looking soldiers. Um, and it was really just, it was sort of a form of protest. Um, it was a, it was an idea that like, you know, if we make this, you know, sort of shine a, shine a satirical light on the, the problems that we are seeing with this, you know, people will, will re recognize just how, how ridiculous and, and how many problems there are. And then, you know, we see this today, you know, look at the daily show or, take your pick for any any political comedy routine that's out there you know your satire is a really is a really powerful tool in and of itself and so what these what these folks would do is they would just dress up in these outlandish uniforms like swords that were way too large or you know ridiculous amounts of ornamentation and buttons and, and ribbons and um, uniforms they, they would just throw these really loud parades where they would just go up and down the street and i imagine it's a little bit like you know any any uh, you know, cosplay group which, which, that can be described as like it's a drinking group where we sometimes dress up in, in costume. You know, a lot of these guys we get you know fantastically drunk and then run around and, and make a lot of noise and, and drive everybody nuts and then go off to, the, to do the next one. And like uh, there, there was a guy that there was one of the stories there was that they they elected a guy who was probably not all there like, as their leader and it was just you know they, they were just sort of showing that just that how ridiculous this this militia system was and. Over over time, it sort of became it morphed out of that satirical thing, and it became more of like an institution in and of itself. Or you know, this is just the thing you do. You know, on this day, you, you go in this, these loud parades, you, you honk horns, and you dress up in these ridiculous costumes. And like a lot of communities just hated them because they were so obnoxious. Um, <laughs> and there's um, some stories of where they were arrested, and you know, because they were like they would, they would get chased out of town because they're just being being just that annoying. And it's basically just one of those things that just it, it sort of just grew with with time. And that's just that's like one example. And, and I sort of came across that while looking at like, you know, how with this idea that costumes can be used to relate to a story. This is just one example of many throughout history where this has happened. When I was working for a, a tech site called The Verge, Handmaid's Tale had just come out and um, there was a it was a major abortion bill in Texas. And, um, you know, protesters started showing up as handmaids from from the handmaid's tale and they still do this today there was an entire organization that sort of sprang up to sort of try to get handmaids to, to stand in front of each state capital across the country and i think that that's again costuming can really in bringing these ideas to life is this very tangible thing and it, it can really sort of jolt somebody into thinking you know to realizing what's what's going on and, you know, this is something we see a lot, you know, the, the, the Tea Party movement had its own protesters and they dressed up as revolutionary figures because, you know, people relate to those stories that makes them recognize and, and sort of understand what their messaging is. There's other examples from the book as well. There's a, there's a guy in Turkey who, who dressed up as Darth Vader during some of the, the protests there. And I'm, I'm sure there's, you know, any, anytime you have got big, you know, really big movements, you'll, you'll see other people dressing up. Uh, another, another really good example was um, the suffrage movement where women would dress up as Columbia or um, Lady Liberty. And, um, you know, there, I, there's some pictures that we that are included in the book that are from the, the National Archives, just these phenomenal pictures of, of these women dressed up in costume on the, on the Capitol, you know, at, at, this, at this point in moment where they didn't have as many rights as they do today. And it's, it's just incredible to see. Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection, obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through 6X. Visit tomboyx.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. 
At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. another historical connection to costuming and cosplay that I I wanted to talk about because I know some of our listeners participate in this group, but not everyone might know about it. And it's pretty interesting. Uh, You trace in the book the origins of the SCA. Will you kind of give a brief rundown of what the SCA is and how it started? Yeah. So the, the SCA stands for Society for Creative Anachronism. It's, it's basically the folks who dress up as, as medieval knights in, in, in armor. And it's, the scope of the group is a little bit broader than that. It's, it's sort of bringing the, you know, the medieval world to life. Um, so like, it's connected to like, the idea of rent fairs, of re- medieval reenactments. And the, the group itself sort of comes out of this weird branch of science fiction fandom, 1950s, 1960s, where cosplay wasn't, was sort of a thing, dressing up in costume was sort of a thing at that point. Um, but what happened is that there was a, um, over in Berkeley, California, a bunch of science fiction fantasy authors sort of got together for like this um, event at their house. And they were basically encouraged to dress up as sort of pseudo medieval characters. And, you know, they, they all showed up, they had a good time, and then they decided that they would go do it again and again. And it basically grew into this much larger group. So um, like authors like Paul Anderson or um, Marion Zimmer Bradley were, were part of this. And, it was just this idea of, again, sort of getting back to the idea of relating to a story, whether it is real or fictional. And medieval Europe has sort of its own story in and of itself, because we have this really peculiar idea of what is medieval 
and like what is actual reality. I think a, a lot of ways the the SCA uh, and I I'm not a member I'm not a member and I uh, this is just something I sort of touch on in the book but they sort of have just an idea of what medieval Europe might have been like and it's sort of really influenced by like you know the tales of King Arthur and you know a lot of those myths those fantastic myths that we we were uh, probably all familiar with and, and rather than like as a straight up historical reenactment group it was sort of like playing with the idea of what we think of as medieval King Arthur's Europe rather than what, what it actually might have been like. And I think anytime you sort of have it, yeah, there's sort of this drift towards reality at some point where you, um, you know, stuff will tend to get a little bit more realistic over time. But for the most part, it, it's it's sort of a little bit more informed by this this idea and this this uh, love of the love of this this um, of, of those of those stories. And it, it sort of grew from there. One of the, the folks I spoke with talked about how a couple of years after this, they basically showed up at, at a, a big convention in California, one of the world cons. And, um, you know, there was alongside science fiction authors talking about the future. There were, you know, these people dressed up as knights in shining armor doing demonstrations in the front lawn of this hotel and, um, you know, hanging out in the hallway. It, it's interesting just to see how this sort of started in science fiction fandom, because that's where sort of all these folks sort of knew each other from. And it sort of grew into its own thing. So now we have this in, huge network of, of Renaissance fairs all over the country. You can go to, you know, established permanent locations that are attractions or, you know, there's, you know, the ones that will, you know, basically an outdoor convention where they'll, you know, show up with tents and armor and, you know, have a good time over the course of the weekend. And um, the, the SA itself has become this massive organization um, that, you know, you know, thousands of people are part of all over the world. And it's just, it's a really, it's a really great example of community and people just sort of sharing in this this a sharing in the community but sharing in this idealized shared story with one another it's so fascinating to me like the level of structure that exists now and knowing that it just kind of started with some people wanting to kick around in fun outfits is pretty great i'm glad that you mentioned worldcon because you mentioned that in the book as kind of one of the first real inflection points of this 20th century move into convention costuming um that the first worldcon was kind of the first time we saw it happen so I am hoping you will talk a little bit about organized fandom or sometimes disorganized fandom and its ties to cosplay history. Yeah, uh, fandom was a really strange and, and very um, sort of wild west of fan organizations over the years, especially around the New York City area where a lot of these authors were from. So science fiction proper, you know, it, it, there's, I like the light, I like the like in history to a geologic formation. So where you have, you rarely have definite breaks where all of a sudden you have one thing that was one thing and then another thing that is a different thing. Right. You know, right next to each other where there's a straight clear line of delineation. History often has like these trails that sort of extend out and merge into other things or they, they sort of uh, change and sort of weave in and out. Science, it, you know, trying to find like a, a put a pin where science fiction comes from is a really difficult thing to do because you know you, you can always <laughs> find something that comes before it um you know yes. you've got Jules Verne but then Jules Verne was in, in influenced by you know folks before him and then like you know Mary Shelley had influences and like you know there's academics who say that you know science the first science fictional novel you know was back in like the ancient Greek times and you know it's I I like to sort of talk about stuff like you know what, what is modern fandom and modern cosplay and modern science fiction look like and a lot of yeah when it comes to that like you have a couple of very clear points that you know you are definitely in a point where there is science fiction but you know it's it's nebulous as to what sort of came before or after science fiction had been around for you know a little while there's a there's an influential magazine called amazing stories that, that was first published in 1926 by a guy named hugo gernsback that's largely seen as sort of the birth of modern science fiction because it was uh, their stories about the future about technology and it, it, it's sort of like the, the the early thing that looks the most like what we have is modern science fiction even though it's it, it, today it would be very outdated that magazine amazing stories was re really influential because a it spawned a lot of imitators from other rival companies who wanted saw that hey there's an audience for this let's jump on this bandwagon and, and go from there um and there's a lot of fans who were like hey i like these stories i want to read more of them and they were consuming all of these things um what gernsback really did that was in interesting was he put a letter column in those magazines and it was basically encouraged those fans to write in comments about the story um just 
I like this thing or, you know, I want to meet other science fiction fans. And he basically set up a, an actual network of, of clubs, um, the science fiction league to try to get, you know, I, I think his reasons were, were very self, you know, self-centered. I think he was mostly interested in making sure that he had a block of people that were in, you know, continually engaged with science fiction, fantasy literature. And, you know, they would continue to go back to his magazines over and over again, regardless of his intentions. Um, you know, this, these clubs really helped get the way to, to get fans to talk to each other. They'd write each other letters through these magazines they would, and they would like, Hey, this person's from New York too. I'll go try to, you know, I'll track them down. Um, and they would go and do this and they would, they formed their own, their own in-person clubs where they could get together and talk about science fiction, fantasy books. And this is sort of where we see the, the roots of modern fandom is that they are people who are gathering because of the shared interest. And when you get a couple people, people to gather in a room, they have a lot of a fun time. They talk about their favorite stories. They nerd out a bit. And then they realize that, hey, there's more people out there all over the place. And let's all of us get together into one big room and talk about the thing we love the most. And before 1939, there were a handful of other small conventions around the country and around the world. There was one in the UK. There's a couple around the United States. There's sort of these proto conventions. But the, this was the first world science fiction convention was like a, a really big official-ish type thing. It was, it was a Times for the World's Fair that year. And they... It attracted fans from all over the country. So not just the New York based fans, um, all of whom were squabbling with one another and, and, you know, had all these, they, they did, some of them didn't really like each other very much, but they were able to bring in fans from, you know, California, like Ray Bradbury and Horace Ackerman and uh, Moroho, who is, uh, I'll get to in just a second. And they, um, you know, this is like a, a, a gathering as a, as a community, a, a, a real sort of inflection point for this community that, you know, hey, we can get together and we can talk about this stuff. And look, there's people that share my interests that are like me. And it's it's a real validation for all those people to say, like, you know, this this is something I don't you know. I don't know many people in my life that really like this sort of thing. But now there are others out there that that's a really a validating Thing for one's existence. I think a lot of people who have been a fan of anything will, will sort of recognize that. So that was, yeah, that's sort of the foundational base layer for all of this. This big convention happened in 1939 and two fans, uh, Forrest and Moroho, they show up, they decide to dress up in costume. They're from the a movie called The Things to Come from uh, based off of an H.G. Wells book. And um, they sort of arrived and everyone's like, what the hell are you doing? This is weird. <laughs> <laughs> And which is, you know, not, not uncommon reaction whenever anybody in costume shows up unexpectedly, he just hangs around and he, he gets a couple pictures taken of him that the, the uh, force gets some pictures of himself taken and uh, his girlfriend is there with him who she actually, she's actually the one who made the costumes. Um, he has for a long time gotten a lot of the credit, but she's the one who actually made them the next year, the, the world, they decided that, Hey, we're gonna hold this convention again uh, a year later in Chicago. And, Forrest and Moroho show up again in costume and a whole bunch of other people show up in costume and they decide like, you know, this is really cool. They walked around the con. They decided to walk out in public. Um, they got stopped by a cop um, who basically thought they were all nuts. And it wasn't until one of them pulled out his, like he was actually a government worker and he pulled out his ID and said, no, I'm not, a, I'm really not this crazy person. Um, and they ended up going over to a newspaper office to say like, Hey, we're time travelers from the future. We're here for our interview. That's going to run tomorrow. <laughs> um, and as far as I could tell that never, they didn't really quite go for that, but they, it was just an idea of the, just, you know, fans being goofy. And you know, you have to remember, these are also kids that are like 18, 20, 21 years old, they, you know, the same age as a lot of cosplayers today. So, you know, there's a lot of, you know, we, the modern day, we like doing a lot of goofy stuff in, in kit and, um, you know, it's a nice little shared point from, you know, people a hundred years ago were doing the same thing. What? I never did anything <laughs> silly in costume ever. Never. <laughs> never. And then the next year, the con went to Denver and people did it again. And they um, decided to hold like a costume contest at this convention. And um, people brought these really elaborate costumes. They brought like one of them spent, um, you know, months putting feathers, you know, making a bird costume, uh, like I was like a bird head. And then um, another one fished a, a big piece of, I don't know, it was a glass or plastic, like for a, a like a spaceship helmet. Um, Robert Heinlein, who is the, uh, the author of Starship Troopers, was a guest of honor. And he didn't realize this costume contest, but then he decided, I'm going to go as um, the most realistic, the world's most realistic robot. 
and you know there's just a lot of other a lot of other stuff like that and from from there what happens is that this becomes a a pillar of the of the of the the convention scene is like at, at, of course at every con now you have a costume contest where people get to just it's usually it was usually like the last day of the convention and people just go to hang out and have fun and you know just have a good time and then throw in some prizes for like the best the best uh, costume or or it, you know it would vary from from place to place so what they would do um but actually looking at there's a great organization called Fanac which documents a lot of this fan history and what they're doing is they they have gotten scans of a lot of like the documents that they were sending out to people so usually what would happen is that a member of the con would get a couple of updates ahead of time saying like you know this is where the convention will be and this is the rate and you know this is what we're having and this you know here's a letter from the organizers saying how excited we are and like over time you're starting to see them saying like oh yes and this year we'll have a costume contest again which is going to be our favorite thing here's some ideas um you know, it just became a big pillar, uh, you know, a big part of this that, you know, just happened year after year. Um, and as it grew, it became more formalized. Um, you know, the costume contest was, it was a masquerade. It had rules that were set down. There's entire organizations that came out of it. Uh, um, the Costuming Guild, which helped set up those rules, um, came out of it. And they set up their own conventions and programming tracks at Worldcons to sort of, because people were like, they might, yeah, I might, the science fiction stuff is kind of fun, but like, you know, I really liked sewing. I really like making costumes. And it, it sort of helped demonstrate that like fandom is not limited to just being an enthusiast for something. You can, you're, you know, one's fandom can uh, appear in different ways. Um, it can be a, you know, you can write fan fiction. You can be the super reader who collects all of the magazines, or you can make the costumes based off of the cover art of, of the, of the books and magazine covers. So that's sort of how, costuming became a thing within science fiction fandom is, is it was this, this it just sort of grew little by little as more people sort of realized and i think it just it just takes one person like forrest or in moroho that's to say oh i really like that character i can dress up as them i have this shirt and my you know my wardrobe or if i do if i put this thing on it will make me look like this character and, and you know as we, we're storytelling creatures we've always sort of gravitated towards adding a prop to you know if we're making a story and you know that just helps that bring that to life just a little bit more. And now it's the funnest part. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through six X visit tomboyx.com. Hey girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of the girlfriends in season one. We told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent 
telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You mentioned some of these early costumes, and this entire book is really, for someone that loves cosplay and costuming and history, it is just full of photos that are really astounding. Some of the earliest of these convention costumes, including Forrest Ackerman's costume in 1939 and others that, uh, they're clearly older photos, but there is an element to them that feels so entirely familiar to anyone who has been to an event like this in the modern era. Um, I want to know how you managed to get a hold of all of those amazing photographs. So there's a couple, couple places. Um, I've been a, a 501st member for since 2003, 2004, and I've carried a camera with me to a lot of events. So a, a whole bunch I took myself over the years. I announced the book back in 2019, spring of 2019. And I actually announced on the day that I was leaving star Wars celebration in Chicago and I, you know, we'd known that we we're going to be announcing it that day. So I, and I was going to the con. So I was like, all right, well, I need to start taking pictures for, for re, I'm quoting air quotes here, research, not just taking in all the, the, the amazing costumes there. But over the, to, the course of 2019, I ended up going to um, Celebration. I went to Dragon Con. I went to Rhode Island Comic Con. And um, I didn't make it to New York Comic Con because my daughter was born like the week before. I wasn't allowed to leave. Uh, I went to uh, Granite State Comic Con, which is a, a really small local convention, and Boston Fan Expo. And all along the way, it was it was taking pictures of, you know, the state of the modern of modern cosplay, and and specifically looking for you know costumes that had been three D printed or that had been made out of foam or you know five first members and you know every you know every, anything that sort of struck my eye that that would be really cool you know just like a I wanted to document a cool costume, um, but also just sort of the idea of like you know. Um, I'm looking for stuff to, to for this book. Um, obviously, I wasn't born in the 1930s and, and wasn't around for a lot of those conventions. So some of those came from uh, some places. There's there's one guy I have to really call out is uh, John Coker, who is a longtime fan, uh, science fiction fan. And he had this really incredible archive of pictures to use um, that he, he really graciously let me use for the book. And these were from you know, all over the place, 1930s, 19, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s. And it was really, you know, his generosity to let me use those really helped include them in, in the book. Um, and there was other authors too. Um, the um, late Mike Resnick was a long, uh, he's a science fiction author um, who incidentally bought my, my first short story for a magazine called Galaxy's Edge. And he had been a long time staple in the, in the science fiction uh, costuming community. And, um, he had taken pictures of cons for most of the time that he was doing that. So his his widow and, and daughter were able to provide a couple that we were able to use and just or just generally 
you know, looking through a lot of the pictures that he, that they had was, was really great just to get an idea of the complexity and like the real craft that was going into these, into these costumes, you know, in the sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties, there's other sources as well. Um, in some cases we went to, um, archives, national archives, library of Congress, Florida. I got some pictures from a Florida archive of for Halloween. UC Riverside has a, has a massive science fiction collection um, and fandom collection. And they had, and I, I found, a, I wish I had found it a little bit earlier in the process because I probably would have gotten more pictures from there. But there's a guy who had taken off uh, pictures of cons for years and he had um, some really incredible pictures of um, fans in, in costume. Um, there's a really great picture of some uh, that I included in the book about Star Trek fans who were hanging out at the con at, at a con. Um, and, it, you know, you look at their faces and it just looks like they were, they could have been any of any of the kids that I saw at Star Wars Celebration. You know, the same enthusiasm was there, the same excitement for being there. Um, and actually, uh, so yeah, they, they, there, there was, there's a whole lot of places where we, where we were able to source, source images from. And along the same lines, you know, we we're able to get a lot of good, um, you know, interviews from folks who were involved in the fan community from there, um, there's a woman named Astrid Bear, who's um, the daughter of, of of Paul Anderson, and she had been in involved in fandom from from all of her life. She provided pivotal information about like you know what was what was it like when Star Trek came in, and she had some great pictures of herself in Star Trek in a Star Trek costume, um, and it, you know stuff that really impacted. So there's you know there's a lot of people here who, alive who are still familiar with you know they they were watching you know the the, the fan scene and, and seeing these early, these early days of costuming. Um, and they were able to, you know, share those memories and, and really sort of help add to the book in a lot of, in a lot of ways. Um, so um, yeah, that, that, that's where a lot of that came from is just, is a lot of research, a lot of interviews. It wasn't just all, just all historical folks. Um, it, you know, it was also people who are involved now. Um, I, you know, I talked to people about, you know, 3D printing and um, you know, what was like, how did like the internet change things in the 1990s? Um, um, Adam Savage of the Mythbusters was a really great um, source for that. You know, he, he's been involved in the costume world for years, and, and you know he had some really great insights into how you know the modern the modern movement has sort of uh, come about. It's interesting that you mentioned the modern movement because I do, like I said at the the top, there is this sense I think for everyone that like they are the first. They are living through the first great explosion of fan costuming. But one of the things that I always love seeing, and you include a lot of it in your your book, you have a, a section that's specifically about when Star Wars premiered and how quickly there were people, certainly they did not have like the the levels of like vacuum-formed ABS plastics that we have today, but almost instantly by the end of 1977, there were already people putting together stormtrooper costumes. Uh, will you talk about some of those? Because I know that we both share a love of this particular topic. So if you type in like 19, 1977 Star Wars costumes, you'll find some really great examples. StarWars.com interviewed a couple of folks and there, there's every now and then you'll see somebody post up a picture. Like, oh, this was me back in, you know, you know, June 77 that I you know worked on this costume. Um, there's a guy I found, um, this, is, this is actually, again, some of the stuff just sort of happened, you know, spontaneously. I, I think I, I announced that I was doing the book and, um, you know, on Twitter and somebody got in touch saying, like, oh, but yeah, my cousin made these really incredible costumes in, you know, the 1970s and, and 80s. And it got me in touch with him. And this is a guy named uh, David Ray. He has sadly since passed away. He, he died not too long after I spoke with him. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, several months later, he had uh, cancer. Um, but I was thrilled to talk to him and he... He was a really gracious interviewee because he he walked me through what he did, and he was basically said, "Well, I was a kid, and um, you know, liked costumes, and I ended up um, going to see Star Wars, you know, 30, 40 times in theaters, and I just took a notebook with me, and I would just jot down notes. And sometimes he would get so wrapped up in the movie that he would forget to take notes, and I'm like, oh darn, I have to go see the movie again. And oh, um, no. yeah, oh no, <laughs> <laughs> twist my arm. And so he he basically went and he made stuff out of cardboard. He got an old army helmet. Um, he would just cobble these costumes together and it looked really great. I mean, like th there's a point to where like, you know, if, you know, if you're a real accuracy person, you're like, Oh, that's not really accurate, but it, it's, it was more like this, the spirit behind it. You know, you just see how much, how much he cared about the costume and, and the character that, you know, he was able to build these really fantastic looking costumes. 
Um, because like, and, and you, they're good enough so that the local movie theater like hired him to basically walk around in 1978 and 1979. Because back then, movies would just run continually. They they wouldn't be like the short, you know, what, three or four weeks that they run in theaters nowadays. Like you know, Star Wars was in theaters for months, and and year it got re released a whole bunch of times in 78 and 79. And so they they hired him to basically you know him and his 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 siblings would like they dressed up in these costumes they they walked around the theater and you know it's a stormtrooper it's Darth Vader um, he made a Boba Fett costume he went on and made um, like Batman and um, I want to say uh, Planet of the Apes costumes yeah there's just a, a lot of creativity and, and you know people were were doing these costumes and really you know they're making them out of really novel ways like you know uh, you know cardboard or, or sheet metal or you know there's sewing stuff together. Um, and these are not necessarily people within that, that capital F fandom community who might have put the skills to use through that, through that community, but they were just like, they're just coming into it blind and like, you know, this is how you, you know, uh, you know, this is how I put this together, Star Trooper or, or make this sort of helmet. And it, 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 it's just a real stroke of creativity, especially when you consider that, you know, there weren't the plethora of, of images that are available these days. Like nowadays, like a really good example of this is in 2016, when right before Rogue One premiered, um, Lucasfilm brought the short trooper costumes to celebration in London. And people took really you know, high resolution photos of all those costumes. They were able to identify some of the used parts and what went into them, you know, down to like the ribbing on the undersuit and the pants and the, the right brand of boot that, that they, they bought to use for that costume. And within months, they had already begun sculpting their own costumes um, out of this armor and they were vacuum forming it. So I was able to go to the Rogue One premiere as a short trooper before the film premiered. Um, you know, people had made the helmets and they made all these other parts. And yeah, they, they, you know, that's we, we could do that because we have all these resources nowadays. But back then, you know, you you had just you had to go to the theater over and over again. You might or you might have like a random not very clear picture in star log or or a newspaper um you certainly didn't have sort of the hands-on access that you had you have these days and you know this the the world has changed so much i mean video games will release 100 page, 100 plus page documents you know outlining every single angle of a character or here's the paint here's the exact paint color scheme yeah for, for halo infinite they uh, uh three four three industries released this massive document for for cosplayers saying like this is what all these parts look like this is what all the colors you need and this is what from every angle and you know we just these folks did the same thing without all of that and it's just really incredible to see that level of creativity persist i'm so grateful that you captured some of those stories for this book because it is one of those things that um i'm i'm blown away by their workmanship even though you said like in a lot of cases they're kind of throwing it together but the ingenuity is off the charts, so it's really, really nice that we have a, a a way that that's been documented for future generations to enjoy. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Country, country, country. 
This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There are so many little gifts in this book. Like for someone that loves costumes, like I said, there are just many, many things that I know surprised me. But I want to know to close out, what was the most surprising thing you learned while you were researching this? Hmm. That, that's a hard one. I've been trying to think about like what this might be. There's there's so yeah, is, there's so many like just random little anecdotes. And, and that's sort of one of the things about history is you, you pull in a thread and there's always a little bit more to the story. And so I think one of the things that blew my mind and really helped shape some of the book was the idea that the reason that we have, you know, you see so many people using 3D printers these days is not because they are suddenly like, you know, magically widely available for no reason. Uh, the patents expired on the original technology. And because those patents expired, companies don't need to pay licensing fees to use the technology. And as a result, they can make a cheaper device. And if you, it's a little bit cheaper to make. You can maybe drop the price a bit. And so the price on, the, on a 3D printer has gone steadily down. You know, it's still a couple hundred bucks, but, you know, it's not, if you're a dedicated customer and this is something that you're doing a lot of, you know, that's it, a it's an investment you can make in order to make those parts and that you might be looking to make. And I, I mean, I have one here at my house and I never, you know, I never would have thought that I'd have, have, a, have a, it's a little one, but, you know, I've made costume parts on it before um, and I've made little toys for my kids and, um, I've got friends who have, you know, two or three of them and they make entire costumes on them. What that sort of helped me realize is that the, and, and this is sort of a broader picture of, of a, just the idea of access to, to cosplay. As the price goes down, access goes up and that appears in a whole lot of ways. So if you have, you know, you don't need a multi thousands of dollars to, to make a vacuum forming machine. If you want to make a short tripper now, you can, you can get buy a 3d printer, or if you have access to one, you don't even need to own it. You can go to a local library and, and print up parts. That's something I've done. You can make a costume. That's a lot cheaper than ever before. Now, it might still be an investment, but it's not quite what it used to be. Um, right. The same thing goes for materials. Um, EVA foam, the stuff that is in your yoga mat, you know, that is an incredible cause, uh, you know, material for cosplayers to use. And, you know, people realize, have realized for years that, you know, this, you can make really incredible armor out of it. And there's a lot of ingenuity that goes with that. It's also really cheap. You can, you can go, nowadays you can go to Joan Fabrics and buy sheets of it. Um, you can buy a yoga mat and you can, you know, make parts out of it. I think that was sort of like the, the biggest revelation I had 
because it sort of transformed the book from a, an idea of like, all right, these events happen and this is sort of what it tells us about fandom into a, a, an economic story about how this is why this has expanded. And, and I, I really believe that it's, it's sort of the, the access to cheaper materials and the widespread knowledge of how to do this stuff you know, you know, that's helped by um, you know, forums or, or Facebook pages or YouTube. Um, it, you know, it teaches a, a much greater population how to do this. And that's also helped along by the idea that when you see sort of cosplay in action, whether it's um, through a you know, friend of yours on Facebook who might have been, got, been to a convention and you happen to see them tagged in a picture, or you know, if you see the main characters on the Big Bang Theory cosplaying, and it's like, oh, that's the thing I can do. And, and, that, and that sort of helps guide that access along. Um, and so, you know, that, that was, a, that was a really big revelation that I had that really helped change the book is that it's, it's the reason that cosplay is exploding so much is that it, now just more people can do it. More people can afford to do it. And um, it's not limited to just a really narrow segment of the population of, of folks who can afford to have, you know, to, to dump a thousand or $2,000 on a, on a really high end costume or, or to spend a decade toiling away on it. Actually, there's another surprising thing that I learned um, that that's kind of fun is that another technological advance that really helped uh, the introduction the introduction of the uh, Blu-ray, because what that did oh yeah is you know if, if you're watching on um, in a theater you can't pause it. VHS does not quite have the right resolution, and when you pause it, you get all the lines across. Um, but then when you have DVDs come around, you can oh you can you can freeze frame it, and you can sort of get a good glimpse of what a piece of armor is, but even then it's still not quite as, you know, the, 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 the resolution is not quite there. What Blu-ray did is it really let you see those, those, those costumes in a really high resolution that you, people had never seen before absent of actually seeing the costume in person. If, if, if a studio happened to like tour them around or, um, you know, if you have to come across one, if you're like a, a really wealthy collector or, or, or whatever, uh, an anecdote that was sh shared with me from a, a, a local Boba Fett cosplayer is that once when the Blu-rays came out, what they started to do is they, they freeze framed on Boba Fett as he was walking around in his like what thirteen minutes of, of screen time, mm -hmm. and they recognized like oh this this thing on here on his arm we we've never quite been able to figure out what it is but it, it's a it's a calculator, and we were able to they were able to figure out what brand that calculator was. So that they were able to go track it down and they could integrate it into their suits. And it was now just a little bit more accurate. Um, the little bits on his knees, the little the dart things, those are like dental picks. And you just never been able to see them in that resolution before. So that was another really, that was a, like an aha moment for me. Because like, oh, well, of course, you know, you, you, if you can see something, you can, you can track down more information about it. And if you can't see it, it just never occurred to me that you just wouldn't have been able to have seen those things in that detail before. Um, so that was a, that was a really kind of a neat revelation. Well, I will say this, uh, this entire book is full of fun revelations. So thank you for writing it and putting it together. And thank you for spending this time with me today. Well, thank you for reading it. I'm really, I'm thrilled you liked it and that you found it to be interesting and exciting and full of revelations. It's been sitting in my head for since 2016. And, um, you know, it's, it's nice to have people realize that it's not just a nonsense or garbage that it's just poured out of my head. So <laughs> I really appreciate it. <laughs> Andrew, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a real joy. Andrew, in case any of our listeners have follow-up questions, and they probably will, where can they find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Andrew Liptak. You can find me on Instagram at LiptakAA. That's L-I-P-T-A-K-A-A. I think I left Instagram at one point, and then when I came back, Andrew Liptek has been taken. So, and then um, the other place you can find me is a, I read a newsletter called Transfer Orbit, and you can find that at um, transfer-orbit.ghost.io, and um, that's where I write about science fiction, fantasy, history, um, pop culture, the intersections with real life, and if all goes well, I'm going to probably write some more. I'll certainly be writing more about cosplay, but um, I have an idea for. Um, something I'm calling the lost chapters, which is stuff I didn't quite get to for the book. So I didn't get around to writing a chapter about furries, which is something I really wanted to do and just it sort of ran out of time. Um, there's a whole bunch of other things that at, at some point over the next couple of months, I'm going to be going back and doing a little bit of research and just writing up some of those things to sort of add on to the book because um, I um, really want to learn. I want to keep learning more about it and, um, you know, adding more to the story. 
I want to once again thank Andrew for hanging out with me and talking about a topic I certainly and pretty obviously love. That book, which is Cosplay, A History, will come out June 28th, but you can pre-order it now wherever books are sold. And then I have a little listener mail for this one that is a special request from our listener, Christine, who writes, Hi, Tracy and Holly. My son, Alex, has been listening to your podcast at bedtime for years. I turned him on to Stuff You Missed in History class when he was having a hard time settling down at night. Now your show is part of his nightly ritual, and he is always pulling up facts that he learned from it. Recently, his class visited the Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia, and he was excited that he already knew about famous inmate Al Capone because of the show. Alex's birthday is coming up on June 20th, so what we are doing today is wishing Alex a very, very happy birthday. Uh, I hope it is wonderful and you have a great time and that you uh, get all of the love and delight and delicious things that everyone should get on their birthday. Oh, yay. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Alex. I won't sing that song because I don't like it, but... I do love birthdays, so I hope it's a great one. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. You can also find us on social media as Missed in History, and you can subscribe to the show on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.